In the last episode, we considered the direction of college admissions today. Informed by international perspectives, considering the challenges of those attempting to transition to school in the pandemic, we now turn to a particular set of students attempting to ascend into higher education under very difficult circumstances, those with LD, ADHD, or mood disorders. Welcome to the Highway to Higher Ed podcast that considers issues facing students applying to college as they attempt to make the transition into higher education. I'm your host, Alex W. Merrill. I'm joined today by independent college counselor and educational consultant, Josephine Bonnerberg. Josephine is the owner and founder of Transitions College Advising, which specializes in assisting students with specialized needs planning and preparing for successful matriculation into college. Previous to her current experience as a college admissions and transition consultant, Josephine was a learning disability specialist for 15 years. She received her undergraduate degree from Georgetown University and a master's of education from Boston University. She's been teaching and advising students since 1992. Josephine, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, let's just start with you. Tell me a little bit about your, you know, your career history and how you got into college counseling. It wasn't a direct route. I actually started my teaching career as an English as a second language teacher, and I worked primarily with college international students in colleges in Boston. I didn't have any background in special ed, and you know, at the time it was the early '90s. It was when we were just talking about differentiated education and learning styles. All that stuff was new, but I noticed that the methods that I used for most of my students didn't work with all of my students, and I was trying out new things. And I was becoming really interested in this difference in in learning ability. The way the information was presented by me had to be a little different for everybody. And I discovered that some of these students had undiagnosed learning disabilities. They were adults by the time they came to me and the compensatory strategies they had been using obviously weren't working anymore in a new country and a new language and all that. So I went back to school to learn about special education and uh, language processing. Second language processing in particular uh, fascinated me from that perspective. Assessments and evaluation, how you know what a person is facing. And then that became my new career, working with students with learning differences. Then 16 years ago, I started working for uh, Fairleigh Dickinson University's Regional Center for Learning Disabilities, and they are a comprehensive, structured uh, LD support program. And I was a learning specialist there, and I worked with college freshmen particularly and helped them with the transition and supported them, made sure that they had access to the accommodations they were entitled to. And it was just an amazing uh, experience, my favorite population of students ever. They did amazing things and were very successful, and it was great to see and, and to be there with them while they, they achieved their dreams. But uh, about five years ago, some parents in my community who had gotten word of what I do, uh, who had kids my children's age, so when they hit high school, started thinking about this college transition and their own children had learning differences. So they would approach me with questions and concerns, and I was invited to present and talk to people. And it really struck me about how much misinformation there is 
and just general lack of knowledge about what happens once they get to college, both in terms of the legal issues, also in terms of the support and accommodations they can uh, expect. Everybody was just a general surprise when I would say things like, oh, your IEP is no longer going to be valid and just, you know, jaws dropping. And I said, oh, my goodness. So then the next step I thought was, wow, I'm going to move into college consulting to you know, help that process along and, and facilitate the launch and the transition to college. And that's been a wonderful experience as well. So that's what I'm doing now. What about your approach makes you sort of distinct, you think, as an educational consultant? Well, because I think I spend more time educating the parents and the student rather than just jumping into, okay, what do you want out of college? Where do you want to go? What size? What location? A good deal of what I do starts with well, let me tell you what's going to happen when they get to college. And we go over an educational process of understanding the difference between IDEA and ADA and 504, the Rehabilitation Act. That exists in college, but a different section of it. So it kind of mandates colleges to do different things than they do in high school. So there's a lot of talk about let's let's look more at the destination. What does it look like? I want it to be clear to you before we start the roadmap. I want them to see what the final destination is going to be much more clearly. So there's the legal part, uh, there's the accommodations part, and there's also the skills that the students will need to be successful. So having done well academically in high school doesn't always translate to an easy transition to college. So we talk a lot about that before we go into the other stuff, which, okay, now let's talk about what your preferences are, what your needs are. If I get a sense that the student is not fully aware of his or her disability and how it affects learning, we kind of put a pause and go over that too. I don't come right out and say all these things. I watch them through the process and make sure they have the information they need. That must take a gradual approach, I would think, and some building of trust along the way, right? Yes. And I think when you work with students with learning differences, starting earlier is better. Generally, college consultants start junior year of high school, and that's perfect. Uh, It gives you time to make sure they take the right classes, junior, have the right activities, if they still have a summer to do an internship, whatever you want. Choosing classes in high school has a huge impact on what colleges you can apply to. And if students are waived from certain classes, for example, foreign language, it might have an impact on what colleges they can apply to because some colleges not all require two years of foreign language. And I'm not saying students have to take foreign language in high school, but they should know what impact that's going to have on the choice of colleges they're going to have. And you don't know what your strengths are going to be, too, by the time you get to senior year. So you want to leave your options open, I think. Absolutely. Uh, You know, all the options are going to be open and just everybody's going in with eyes wide open. And we don't meet like every day. It's just like a discussion. You know, here are things to look out for through the four years. Sit down with your child. You know, let's do a postmortem at the end of every year. How did it go academically? Why did it go well? What were the problems? What modifications were really helpful? You know, what should you continue? Are there schools that, um, as far as like kids with different learning profiles or dyslexia or dysgraphia, that sort of thing. Are there schools that are good for those types of kids? Like which schools do you typically look at? In all schools, every 
college and university that gets federal funding, which is basically all of them are required to provide a basic level of accommodations. And it's becoming easier. They are now even colleges, they used to say you you have to have a neuropsych evaluation dated no more than three years ago. But now some colleges are even looking at the 504 plan or the IEP, not to transfer it over, but just to look at it. And they meet with the student and they work together on deciding what accommodations would be useful for them to be able to have access to the classroom, because that's what the law does in in college. It just says students are going to have access. It's a civil rights law. And for some students, that's enough. Just having extended time on testing, the ability to take exams in a distraction-free location, for example, having a note taker, those are some of the common ones. Not available everywhere, but for some students, that's all they need. They're ready to go. Then you have some schools that have additional levels of support where they have a specific department that works individually with students and they help them with the process of accessing the support. They meet with them once or twice a week to make sure they're on track. They help them set uh, semester goals. There are certain resources that parents could use to look them up. The most commonly used one is called the K&W Guide of Colleges that provide uh, you know, additional support. But you have to be careful because it depends on the type of needs that the student has. You know, some colleges, they work with students with language-based learning disabilities. That's their focus. So a student with dyslexia would be good in certain places, but they might not work with somebody with severe executive function issues. That might be another place. Or a college might work with students on the autism spectrum, but not other colleges. So there's no one answer. It depends on the specific type of support and accommodations the students need. So, for example, Marist College, they have a wonderful support center, but it's really students with language-based learning disabilities, it seems to me. Well, and I imagine, too, you would find like peers, I mean, in, in those types of institutions as well, which I think is probably a, a yes. key consideration. Absolutely. And sometimes for some of the programs for students with ASD, they have mentorship programs that are fantastic. Rutgers University and state of New Jersey has a wonderful program there. So you can find different things depending on your needs. What needs specifically do freshmen have at college in your estimation, particularly with learning disabilities? You could address that generally too. What needs do they have And how are those things sort of best met, in your opinion? Well, I think before you get to the point, what support do they need is what skills can we help them build before they get to college? And I think one of the big differences between college and high school is the amount of unstructured, unscheduled time. So my students would say, yeah, I have all this free time, you know, only 15 hours of class. I'm like, free? No, that's a four-letter word that begins with F, free, free time. There's no free time. We have to figure out how to use that time productively, effectively, constructively. And it is a brand new skill that they haven't really practiced. Time management is not something that high school students really practice because they don't really have their own time to manage. So that's a big challenge for students. Learning how to create their own structure and routine, 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 developing that is really important. Now, in programs that 
have the kind of support that I was talking about, the very structured support, they will help them. They'll meet the students once a week. And that kind of helps them get on their, you know, get on track pretty quickly. So what's happening in high school that's not happening in college? Well, in high school, before teacher presents something, do a lot of previewing, maybe you watch a movie, you make a poster, you do group discussions, then they present the content. Then you do homework, you have practice, the teacher goes over the homework, and then you have the test. And in college, you get the content and the test. And all the other stuff has to be done by the student. The ownership of learning is really shifted to the student in college. Do you have any stories of triumph or, if you'd like to be so bold, failure of kids that you've worked with? Well, I think of one that I always hold dear in my heart. And I think it demonstrates the need for self-advocacy as well and self-awareness and this student and if he's now a teacher so amazing and I think we need teachers like him he was told when he was much younger that he probably wouldn't be able to do college and it stuck with him and he spent a lot of time thinking about why somebody would say that and why he could do it. So he started to focus on his strengths. And by the time he got to college and, and freshman year was bumpy. I have to say a lot of freshman years were bumpy. So nobody should be put off by that. I mean, my freshman year was bumpy too. <laughs> One thing that happens in college, and I warn my students now about this, is they get to an English class, for example, and they get their first draft back and it's just red or whatever marked up everywhere. And I, I think, you know, working in college, I'm like, well, that's normal. The teacher's job is to make you a better writer. You're not a perfect writer yet. And they don't know that's normal yet. So that really set them back and made them question again, their own ability. And, you know, I remind them that you're here to learn more than you already know. And that this is part of the road that you're going to get comments. And it's not criticism, but it's advice on how to improve this or that. So I think that threw him off. And I think that's another big difference between high school and college. By the time you're at the end of high school, you know, you're getting A's and everything you hand in is wonderful. And those first uh, comments on papers and everything is kind of jarring for students and, and understandably so. And they come in already, maybe students with learning differences may already be less confident of their abilities, but, you know, we're there to remind them that this is normal. You have strengths too, and let's figure out how to bring those out. And then they see that they end up getting a good grade anyway. So the grades weren't the problem, which is the process of getting there. That was scary. And it's often jarring, but this student uh, had to take foreign language, like many students do. And he really was having difficulty passing this Spanish class. He approached the professor and explained very, very logically in a positive way, was not confrontational about what the problems were. And the professor was, you know, she was there to help him. And it was kind of a pay it forward situation where after that, she understood and changed up her own presentation of the material. His own self-advocacy and explaining to the professor got him past this class, made him feel more confident, and he went on, got his master's, and is now as a teacher. So, you know, you have to know what to expect, be realistic, and this self-advocacy piece is so important. You could make your professors your allies if you explain what you need or not, you know. 
what works as far as a, a specialized educational plan in high school doesn't necessarily work in college for those students. And it's very different depending on the college campus, what sort of you know, environment they're going to have, what sort of requirements, what sort of stipulations. Those are all very specialized. So it's incumbent on the parent to determine what those things are, particularly if the student hasn't, hasn't, hasn't quite developed their um, self-advocacy skills to the level where they're actually going to get some assistance on those matters that are really critical to them succeeding. Another thing that stuck out to me in my conversation with Josephine in the first segment was that starting early with kids with special needs is critical. She mentioned in particular freshman and sophomore years. It's also critical for students with special needs to develop a relationship with college counselors or educational officials that are going to help them in this process more critical for those with special needs who really do need these services that are going to help them through this process more than the average student. So all the more reason why you get an early start with kids like this. What are some unique challenges today to kids who are transitioning to college because of the pandemic? Well, I think the uncertainty of it all is a problem. I think everyone thought we knew where we would be this fall and having to follow email after email of new ways of approaching campus and how we're going to handle classes, how we're going to handle testing. That's a lot of information for anybody to handle. But for a new student that's, you know, college is all new, everything's new, plus we have this other added piece. So I think students need guidance um, managing all that information and helping them work through it the best we can. For students learning remotely last year, and it won't be as much of an issue hopefully this year, but new ways of taking notes, new ways of testing, all of that was was a bit tricky, to be honest. And they needed guidance. We had to be there for them, and that worked out. But I think right now the focus is what's freshman year going to look like? You know, the college sends tons of information from the moment they get accepted, making sure they're keeping on top of that, reading their emails, constantly looking if there are any class changes, very practical things like that. Classes may move from this to that to hybrid all of a sudden. So just daily opening their emails, making sure they're managing that well is really, really important. There's a lot of important information if you miss it and you don't, you know, contact this person by this date, you might be out of luck with a certain class or with placement in a dorm. So managing all that is always difficult, but it's particularly challenging right now. Oh, okay. And another thing that was always helpful to all students was the orientations to get them accustomed to the campuses. Yeah. And that's you know, not all of them are running them. And I think our students in particular needed familiarity with the location, the culture, the feel of the campus, where the cafeteria is, and that might be scaled back. And although a lot is happening online, virtually, it's not quite the same as, you know, being physically there. And and I think another thing that this particular class of students has lost out on was one of the things that I recommend for students who are less 
certain about their skills is a summer pre-college program, their junior year before they move up to senior year of high school. And there are a lot of these great programs where they're residential, they live on a campus, and it's just the idea is to set them up for what college is going to be like the, you know, sleeping in a dorm and eating in a cafeteria and being with people that are new. And all of that was off the table last year. So this particular incoming class of freshmen might not have had as much of that experience because of last summer. I'm actually intrigued by these summer pre-college programs that you're talking about. Is there a resource where you could find those? George Washington University has, I think it's called the Heath H-E-A-T Center for Transition, and they publish, they used to publish a list every summer, every spring for the summer, and they're kind of outdated, but you could still get the most recent one, which is a few years old. You just click and it gives you ideas for those programs. I think a lot of private schools, boarding schools have uh, leaned in that direction with their summer programs. Mm -hmm. What are some of the obstacles that parents are facing today? What should they be sort of thinking about going into this fall? Okay, well, there are pros and cons to everything. It's not all horrible or all bad. So one of the bads, very bad, was that campus visits were not really a thing this past year. So parents are behind on that. Not in person. So that's a challenge. It's it's hard to visit all these colleges all at once. Um, For a lot of reasons, parents work. Also, it can be overwhelming for the student to go on all these college visits all in one, you know, for some families you do seven in a week and the student's like, yeah, but no, that's not everybody for sure. So yeah, not, and from as a mom myself, I don't know if I would have enjoyed that, but they are opening up and that's good. But there was that gap of time that people couldn't visit in person. But the good news is that a lot of these colleges have moved to virtual visits. And I think now I tell my parents, do the virtual stuff first with your child, have your kid lead that. Parents are leading from behind. You can help steer them in the right direction, but you know, have them be the one to go on the site, click on it. And one of the best resources are when you can actually have real-time contact with current students at the college, the information sessions, usually in the spring, that's like the information session season for colleges. And a lot of them have moved virtually to that. So you can log on and watch real students speak about their experience in college act. So it's when kids are making decisions about where they want to go. Yes. Or as they're starting, you know, you could be a freshman and sign up for these tours. They're considered college visits or college tours. So there's the usual college tour with, you know, one person that speaks about how great college is and takes you to all the different departments and you're following along with the camera. But there are also information sessions where you get more information, either focused on a particular department or school, but for programs that offer support for learning disabilities, those usually look like some students from that program talking about the advantages of panel discussion. And, and, and it's yeah. wonderful. And you can either type in questions. And so now, even though visits in person are happening again, I still think that's a good place to start. As much virtual as you can kind of get a familiarity, you can take off colleges from the list that way. Um, it makes it a lot more manageable. So right. 
pros and cons, everything, you know, they're bad things, but I think that's here to stay. I mean, not everybody wants to fly out to Denver to go see the University of Denver, which has a great support program, by the by, but you might want to- So it's a long flight for, yes, for one, for one, one school. school. Right. <laughs> right. You know, if you go onto the admissions page of the school website, even now they still have options for virtual visits, many of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. All right. What are your thoughts about standardized testing? This is how I approach it with my students. That testing for a lot of our students was not their forte, wasn't the thing that they were looking forward to. But I tell my students and the group of students I have now, I'm still encouraging them to prepare and do as well as you can. And then if they're really good grades, we'll use them. And if they're not, we won't. And that seems to take the edge off. The idea that this is high stakes, they have that college, they have to get a minimum, you know, of 1250 or whatever. So the, the idea that they don't have to take them seems to help in some cases. Uh, the University of Georgia system, their tests are going on again. So you really have to do your research. Every school is different. Some schools have said they're going to stay test optional forever. Uh, some schools have been test optional for a long time, and this is not new to everybody. Right. So I, I always look for test optional schools before. I used to go to fairtest.org. That's a, an organization that keeps track of the schools that are moving test optional. Or you may have schools that are test optional except for major A and major B, you know, depending on the major. The one thing that bothers me about this, though, and the standardized tests in general, is that it can impact their ability to get certain scholarships. Some of the schools that have moved to test optional say that we're just looking at their profile, their academic rigor, their grades, that's enough. Other schools are still considering the tests to decide on scholarships and not so much uh, admissions. So I need to research that and help the parents navigate that. You know, the cost of college can't be ignored for sure. So um, that may have an impact on the institutional monies that are available to certain students. One thing that stuck out in this segment is the problem of uncertainty for kids who are transitioning to college during this pandemic. She mentioned how they have tons of information coming at them from their college. And managing that is particularly challenging for kids with specialized learning uh, profiles. I think it's really important to make as much of that predictable as possible. Make a list of all of the things that they're gonna pack for school and lay those things out. Take sort of some of the uncertainty out of the things that you can control. Any sort of efforts I think that you make ahead of time when it comes to those unpredictable you know, factors of school are going to make it that much less intimidating once they get there day one. The importance of visiting on virtual visits is interesting, I think, particularly for those who have anxiety. That can sort of calm somebody as much as anything. That really takes the edge off. In a lot of ways, that's kind of how we learn and how we adapt to circumstance is by experiencing it for ourselves. Um, Any effort I think you can make to get a kid's eyes on campus, I think virtual can be just as good as in person. Uh, And it certainly beats not seeing the school at all. So one question in particular that I had for you was, for parents of kids who are uh, younger, what do you think this process is going to look like in five to 10 years from now? So 
I don't see the college application process changing too much. Now, one of the things that's happened because of COVID and the whole standardized testing issue is as standardized testing becomes less important, academic rigor is becoming the thing that colleges are paying attention to. So um, not just if you're getting A's and B's, but what classes are you getting A's and B's in? How many APs are you taking? And I see that as a problem for some students who aren't ready for that kind of rigor as early as other students are. So it's really putting some students at a disadvantage. If you could give parents one piece of advice going into this year's um, admission cycle, what would that one piece of advice be? I don't just think in terms of getting into college. I'm going to help them with a college admissions process and that big, long task, and, and I guide them through it. But I'm always thinking what happens when they get there. And for me, it's all about the transition. So while I'm working with the student, I think that the parents and I should find ways to make the student the owner of his or her own learning and skill building. And we do that, I think, by, again, this leading from behind idea. So when they have something due, you know, oh, I saw you have this due tomorrow. Let's start studying this right now. Instead of that, say, well, do you have anything due tomorrow? What's due tomorrow? Let's look at your calendar together. Oh, and what's your plan? What's your plan for getting that done? So asking them to sort of start articulating how they're going to approach their own learning. And I do that when we work through the college process. Well, why do you think that college is a good fit for you? So asking the right questions, really getting the students to start articulating where they are on things. And then if they haven't done so already, the student really needs to be engaged and in charge of the IEP meetings. They need to be able to feel comfortable to ask questions, uh, understand what accommodations they're getting and how they help them. Not just, you know, I get this, this and that, but I, I work through that and say, well, why is that helpful? Why do you think that's helpful? Because that's what they're going to be asked to answer when they get to college to get those accommodations approved and put in place. So for me, the college application process is super important and I work on that and I make sure they have all the right information. And I know enough about the student to really recommend colleges that are the right fit for the student. But in the meantime, there's this gradual skill building that needs to take place. It's, it can't be an either or. They have to take place together because we want to get them into the college that's the right fit, but we want to make sure that they have the skills that will make them successful when they get there. Having a really scary first semester doesn't serve anybody. So. No, I mean, uh, part of the reason why the attrition rate is so high, 30% of kids don't make it to sophomore year. And it's higher for students with learning differences. And I think this this transition piece is left out of, of too many of these conversations about college. Totally. I like that phrase that you're using to leading from behind. It's an interesting one from a tutoring perspective as well uh, to think about it in that way. Uh, I just want to say thank you for being on the show with us uh, today. Appreciate your time. Well, thank you. It was really nice to talk about all of this and putting together the college piece and the college application piece together. So thank you for allowing me to do that. 
Here are some final conclusions that I had after my conversation with Josephine. Number one, specifically pertaining to um, kids with uh, learning disabilities, ADHD, this might be the best sort of piece of advice I think that any parent in this circumstance can receive. Asking the right questions of that student to find the right school, not based on where their friend is going, but really what's going to be the best experience for them. Getting to that school is not necessarily the end of the game. It's a big threat for those kids to thrive and, and do well in the, in the school that they go to. Another conclusion that I drew from our conversation was about a phrase that she kept on using, and that was a leading from behind. You know, we talk about all of these efforts that we can make as parents, organizing, structuring the time, executive function, finding college offices, self-advocating, but we're not doing those things. We don't want to be the ones talking to the professors. And yet they also need us to be there as well. And if you're not there, I don't think you're doing the job either. You can't take the reins and you can't be gone. So it's got to be somewhere in between. Now, I like this idea of leading from behind. You point them in the right direction to the degree that they need it. Give those resources to them. You know, then they are the ones that sort of take those next steps. Another concept that's come up over and over again is this concept of free time. It might be free in September, and yet you're paying for it in the long run. You don't have free time in college. It looks free, but it's a mirage, right? That is the time that you should be spending outside of class doing the reading, getting ahead in certain classes. If you don't do that reading early on, Sometimes it never really gets done because you get caught up in doing midterms and papers and other assignments. You get caught up in your social life and your other responsibilities for school. The quicker that they can sort of pick up on that, the more that you can sort of point out that time isn't free, <laughs> that, that it's used unwisely when you're on campus, you're going to pay for it later. I think if we keep on continuing to remind them, provide, again, the sort of structures that are going to be able to coach them through that lesson where they're going to fall on their face is critical to them being able to survive and to actually swim um, when you put them in the deep end. Thanks for listening to Highway to Higher Ed, the podcast that helps the parents of today's rising college stars navigate the obstacles in college admissions to find the best possible college match and help them thrive once they get there. If you like this episode, be sure to give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Mm-hmm.